Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 54, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, I'll let you into a little secret here. Ravi's actually on a plane right about now. Yeah, I'm actually travelling over the sea to Ireland, Dublin. Your quality sounds very good, considering. <laughs> yeah, we've pre-recorded this show. <laughs> but um, I'm going for Amiga Island, which is uh, an event going on to celebrate the Amiga computer. Whoa. Wherever there's Amiga celebrations and beer, you're straight there. Yeah, and <laughs> I tell you, I'm going to get some amazing interviews. And these aren't necessarily Amiga-related, but we've got some amazing people we know in Ireland. So. You know, there's a little teaser here. Um, next week on the show, Ravi's going to tell you a bit more about his experiences at Amiga Island. You know, whenever I say Amiga Island... I always picture like an actual island filled with Amigas and like Heaven. <laughs> people that's fishing like chips out the sea and stuff. But yeah, there'll be a little report from Ravi next week, and I know that a few um, little interesting interviews that you're going to record when you're out there too. Oh, totally. So well, we'll keep you up to date on that. Check our Facebook page as well. Now, of course, the way the Retro Hour works is if you are new, Ravi and I go through the big tech and retro stories of the week, and it's been a really interesting week. Obviously, that big Nintendo news that we have to talk about in just a minute. And then the second half of the show, we hand over to a veteran of the video games industry. And we've got Julian Gollop. He basically did the original XCOM games and he tells us about what he thinks of the new XCOM games. And also stuff like Laser Squad, obviously. Oh, Chaos Reborn as well, you know, Games Workshop, all this kind of big tabletop connection yes. with him. If you're yeah. into like RTS and strategy games and that kind of thing, this is one not to miss. Such an interesting interview. Julian Gollop is going to be on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now, of course, this show every week would not be possible without your very generous support. Now, we do have a little tip jar on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. If you ever want to leave a little donation, of course, it's completely optional. You know, don't feel pressured or anything. But, you know, if you're there, maybe on Friday night, Maybe a little glass of whiskey and you're thinking, yeah, those guys do a good podcast. <laughs> Get them drunk first. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's a thinking, yeah. All you've got to do is nip onto our website. There's a little PayPal link there at theretrohour.com. We are blown away by your generosity as well. Now, I've got to say, a huge thank you to the team at piecipecentral.com. Oh, they could send us some pies maybe one day. Uh, T- Titus Murph. Uh, Christopher Ruppersberg. Keith Gunn and Christopher McGonagall, who've all made very generous donations to the running of the Retro Hour podcast this week. Thank you so much, guys. And all you've got to do, if you'd like to leave one, is nip onto our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we did mention that it has been a pretty big week for a classic video games company. And this is actually really weird, because on Friday, um, it'll be a week ago at the time this, uh, this show comes out, um, I had a friend coming in the afternoon, so I thought I'd get up really early, get on my work for you know the day done. So I was up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Logged onto my PC, in my gym jams, you know, cup of coffee on the go. And all of a sudden, I noticed pretty much all the YouTubers that I follow were streaming live. And I was like, what's going on here? It's like, you know, Review Tech USA, Boogie was streaming live, um, Adam, Adam Corley yeah, was doing yeah. it, uh, IGN were doing it. I was like, what's going on here? And I thought, ah, oh, the Nintendo announcement. Now, it was on at like, you know, half past four or five o'clock in the morning, UK time. So a lot of people didn't catch up until later on in the day. But it was interesting seeing all this different reaction to um, kind of Nintendo giving us the full lowdown on their new console, the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I find it interesting because I did the same thing, looked online, and there was lots of people they hadn't actually put the Nintendo footage in with the live streaming yeah. because of obvious reasons Nintendo always trying to take stuff down. I, so angry, it was just a video ang- of people shouting this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Angry Joe had to re-upload his video three times, I think, because of that. Oh, always taking them down, aren't they? Even, even their own press releases. <laughs> Which is nuts, though, isn't it? You think at this, you know, it's such a sensitive time for them. I mean, you know, a lot of people are saying the Switch is make or break for Nintendo. Yeah, yeah. So you think they'd want everyone to get the story out there and... That's it, yeah. Well, Adam, Adam's, I was just watching his, and I was like, what's he on about? I need to find a stream of the other one and then play them synchronised, press space at the same time, <laughs> see what happens. Well, it looked pretty cool. I don't know how much of this you saw, but, I mean, there's, you know, a few... I think some of the stuff they showed, they, they opened with a game called Arms. Okay. Um, but, again, it was a lot of that. I mean, they probably spent about 50 minutes on motion controls again. Yeah. And it was like, you know, 
Wasn't that a bit 10 years ago? Yeah, and you know, the people were probably wondering, this is a retro hour, why are we talking about Nintendo? And it's because it is Nintendo. It's not Sony who are mm. doing very well. It's not Microsoft who are doing well, you know. It's the company that may be gone if they don't <laughs> succeed. You know? well, it's the oldest video games company in the world, isn't it? As well, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, this console does have a lot of appeal for, you know, retro gaming fans. I mean, we put a little post on our Facebook page. Pretty good reaction to it so far. In particular, the new Mario game, which is essentially like, you know, you could say it's a bit like an HD upgrade of Mario 64. Yeah. It yeah. looks gameplay very similar. Um, you know, it's really that, you know, throwback 3D Stuff Mario Stuff like stuff. the Sonic games coming out as well and, you know... Yeah, Sonic Mania is going to be a launch title for it as well. And there's actually a few... Um, IGN did a 10-minute gameplay of Sonic Mania at the Nintendo announcement. Nice. And it does look like, you know, everything you want from an old-school Sonic game. Um, but I think, you know, some of the stuff they were showing, I don't think anybody, though, is going to do what Nintendo think, you know. Did you see in the trailer when guys are playing a basketball game and, like, some guy comes over with a Switch and goes, hey, let's stop playing basketball in real life and sit down and play it on the Switch. They seem to be going really heavy for this, like, party game kind of stuff, which... Okay, yeah, like, well, casual, casual crew. Yeah, and a lot of yeah. motion control games again, but it's like, I don't know, does anyone care about motion controls after the Wii? It's we'll like... see. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm going to be getting one on day one, though, I've decided. Okay, I'm coming around yours. <laughs> <laughs> Pricing, though, 299 it's going to be coming out at. So a bit more expensive than people thought. But, I mean, you have got that tablet screen and all that, which is not going to be cheap to manufacture, yeah, I imagine. It's not that bad, though, is it, compared to the launch prices of, like, the PlayStations and stuff like that? Yeah, you're talking, like, at least 100 quid cheaper. So, I mean, judging by the reaction on our Facebook page, I think, you know, it's got a pretty positive reception. So, obviously, I'll uh, let you know my thoughts when I get my hands on one. But yeah. Nintendo Switch is coming soon, uh, coming out in March. So, not long away. Well, I think they're a little bit behind the Apple, too, because they haven't got Portal yet, Dan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, Portal has just been ported to the Apple II. <laughs> this is crazy. I love this guy's video as well. Now, this has been posted on the register. <laughs> and uh, this guy, I think it's fair to say, a little bit eccentric. Yeah, isn't he got like a flux capacitor in his video? Also? And he wears like flight goggles on his head. Yeah. So essentially, if you watch his video, he, uh, he transports himself back in time to like 1977. <laughs> And takes Portal with him, and uh, what he's done is, it's essentially a demo of Portal running, you know, kind of, well, obviously very much downgraded, 2D side view of Portal on the uh, Apple IIe. It's a little tech demo, isn't it, kind of? Obviously, the, the high-res mode of the Apple II, not quite as um, fully spec graphically as stuff like the Xbox One and but, stuff. But... Do you remember um, Halo 2600 as well, which was like the downgraded version of Halo? That yeah. was really cool. And he's saying here, you know, he wrote a physics engine for it and uh, he means five lines of basic. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the physics engine. Well, you've got to think with the limitations of the RAM and stuff on that system. I mean, you know, if, if it does the job, just the fact that you can do that is cool. Yeah, totally. Like, I hope this comes out as a full game. It'll be amazing. <laughs> See, an Apple II, it's not really a system that was that big over here, is it? But everyone we interviewed from America, they all started on the Apple II. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of where all the piracy came from, where all the California kind of culture mm -hmm. started emanating from the Apple II. So, you know, legendary system. I've never actually used one before, though. No, I've never I've never seen one. Yeah. yeah. After a few retro shows in the summer, hopefully, aren't we? So yeah. uh, if anyone's going to bring one along, do drop us a little tweet. I don't know if we get on this side of the pond, though. Actually, they did come out over here. But, uh, yeah, at, at Retro UK, if you've got an Apple II, <laughs> you're going to be displaying it anywhere on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Now, we covered the Switch before, but, um, you know, we can forget that for a moment. The Game Boy's back. Yeah, the Game Boy's back and he's grown up. He's now a super retro boy. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a new remake of the classic original Game Boy. Yeah, and you, you can actually use your old carts in there. Oh, wow, okay. Which is really cool. And um, it's got 10 hours battery life, which is a massive improvement on the old one. And this is by micro USB charging. Okay. Also a TFT screen. That's pretty cool. So it's a company called Retrobit. Who are behind this, and they, they actually showed this up for CS um, last week, and this has got quite a lot of coverage by the mainstream media, hasn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I think, I think the kind of name really helps as well, Super yeah. Retro Boy, definitely gets it out there. But it's a nice idea, and it's $80, it's not that expensive. And it's got a colour screen as well, so it's not just black and white like the original. Yeah, maybe it's a bit more like a, a Game Boy Advance, but it says here it can play Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, and original Game Boy games. Yeah, so. which is pretty cool. I mean, even the form factor of it, it does look very similar, you know, to the old school Game Boy. I'm wondering, though, is this officially licensed? 
Yeah, we'll see how long this one lasts. <laughs> you know, we, we said it on the show before, if there's one company that are kind of quite hot on their copyright, it's uh, yeah. Nintendo. And obviously Nintendo at the moment, they're kind of on this, you know, nostalgia trip with the uh, the original NES. If they're looking at that thinking, hmm, we could do this ourselves. So Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point, Dan, actually. <laughs> that may be... Imagine if they did like a, a kind of Game Boy ds retro yeah. kind of combo. Well, you know, actually, I mean, you know, we mentioned the Switch before. One thing I was reading about the Switch is that Nintendo have promised that there's not going to be any supply shortages of this. They said, unlike, you know, the, the NES Classic mm. that's sold out everywhere. Apparently, they were caught really short with that. There was an interview with uh, Reggie, you know, like CEO of um, Nintendo America. Yeah. And he was saying the, re- the reason for those shortages were it wasn't intentional. They expected a few 40 to 50-year-old men to buy it and no one else. <laughs> and they couldn't believe the interest. They were like, what, wait, everyone wants this? So. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, they don't know the, the retro bug, do they? They're now getting a little sample of it, and I'm sure they're going to do a lot more retro things. Oh, wouldn't you love to see like an updated N64 and Super Nintendo? Oh, yeah, N64, so. definitely, without that horrible, um, what is it, fuzziness. Or the blurry, yeah, yeah. anti-aliasing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of classic stuff that's back as well, were you a fan of Rollercoaster Tycoon back in the day? I was I was originally a theme park fan. Yeah. I, I, I kind of got into Roller Coaster Tycoon, but um, I didn't have a powerful enough PC back then, so it ran really badly. Well, after Theme Park, I mean, kind of faded away, that was really the game that took over, you know, for those fans, wasn't it, really? The Roller yeah, and that was Tycoon. with um, Alistair Brimble also did sound for that, and Chris Sawyer mm-hmm. as well also did a, a lot of the early Roller Coaster Tycoon games. So again, I was like you, I was a bit more into Theme Park. Um, I did play Roller Coaster Tycoon, I mean, there's been so many different versions of it over the years. But there is actually um, a new version. I say new. It's actually a compilation of the original two games, Rollercoaster Tycoon and 2, um, that are going to be released on um, iOS and Android. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they're actually putting these together. You know, the original games are in there as well. There's also like a few little tweaks and a few little um, nice upgrades as well. And um, they're going to be releasing this, you know, as a download on uh, on mobile and for iPad as well. That's really good. And yeah. f- from what I'm kind of aware of, um, it was the theme park kind of lost its crown yeah. a bit. The crown slipped and Roller Coaster Tycoon came and fit in there, just like SimCity and City Skylines at the moment. Well, it was a bit weird because, I mean, Theme Park was such a big game and it was released on everything then. You, you thought that would be... Because Roller Coaster Tycoon was a franchise that lasted like 10 years after that, wasn't it? But Yeah, you thought you thought that would be the standard yeah. <laughs> then, yeah. So that yeah, was a bit, of a bit of a tragedy. But, you know, I, I do know that Roller Coaster Tycoon, in terms of, you know, if you're into building your own theme parks and rides and stuff like that, it can be a load of fun. I think, you know... A lot of the old kind of PC games don't translate into mobile very well, but this is all just drag and drop with your finger, isn't it? So, oh, yeah, that would be great on a, on a tablet. Yeah. And imagine that. So uh, if you want to download that, we'll pop a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this um, this new movie that you've been looking at then about um, women at NASA on the first ever IBM machine. Yeah, so this is uh, called Hidden Figures, and it's really interesting. It's I watched it the other night. I recommend it to all of you guys. It's out in the cinema at the moment. Um, you can get it by other means as well. <laughs> There's, uh, it's, it's, it's basically about how NASA, before the IBM and before the computers, computers were women. Yeah. That's what they were known as. And they would sit there, they would do coding, and they'd do it all by hand. Now, imagine you're in the space race and you're fighting against Russia. Then you're really going to need these computers, is what they call them. Now, this film's really good because it's kind of set in the time of America when race relations weren't that well. But these women were really pushing it forward. Now, I thought a really interesting part of this is it's kind of like uh, the theory of everything, if you remember that. Yeah. Or the um, imitation game. A really interesting part of it is they bring the first IBM machines into NASA in the film. And there's a hilarious scene where, you know, they've bought these giant IBM computers and they realise they don't fit through the door. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just smashing it through with a hammer. And this shows about how the first, no one knew how to use it at first. And some of these computer women decided, right, we're going to have to train ourselves up on this IBM machine or it's going to replace us. And then they end up becoming the top IBM NASA managers. And they were called the Computer Pool. That was their name, wasn't it? Yeah, these, yeah. These women. Which is really interesting. I mean, this is actually, it's a proper movie then, yeah? It's a dram- oh, yeah, proper Hollywood movie. And it's all about Katherine Johnson, who was one of the mm. greatest mathematic minds. And she's actually got buildings named after her now in the NASA campus. Which is stuff. interesting, though, because I mean, you look back, I mean, 
you know, you know, you often think of computers in those days as being like, you know, big beardy like men, don't you? But yeah. it's like, actually, you know, even look like Bletchley Park and stuff like that. It was a, women were actually at the forefront of this technology. Really, they were the ones operating it for many. Totally, years, really. and and a lot of the calculations and stuff were about landing because mm-hmm. they knew how to fire the rocket <laughs> into the sky, but they didn't know how to get it back down to Earth. So, returning but, him safely. So they helped. This is about the first getting the first human into space, and then. Later on, they helped with the space race and the um, getting someone to moon. I wonder, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't actually seen any of this film myself yet. But um, is, is it kind of the old technology in there and stuff as well? I imagine, like the old IBM machines. Oh yeah, the old of? IBM machines are all kind of manually done by punch cards, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of mathematics on chalkboards. Okay. That's how it's all kind of done. You know, they're just who did this equation? A bit like uh, Goodwill Hunting <laughs> when they find that one. Vintage hardware porn's always good, though. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I think our listeners would enjoy this because you just see lots of old computers. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you mentioned then they had to take like, the side of the building off to get the computer in. It's like, have you seen that picture? I think it was at IBM, actually, where they're trying to take like a something like a, a five megabyte hard disk out the back of a van. Yeah, I've seen that. It's like 20 men yeah. and ropes and stuff. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It's like the size of a car, isn't it? Yeah. The, the funny thing about this film is they're like, nobody touched them. They're complex pieces of equipment, but no one knows what to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a good trailer for that, actually. If you want to see that, it's on CNN's website. We'll stick that in our show notes as well. Now, some good news to start 2017. Um, apparently, computer-related injuries are on the decline. Yeah, since 2011, uh, they've been going down. So, uh I don't know why this is. Do you think it's because kind of computers are smaller? Or? Oh, okay. Well, first of all, have you ever had a computer-related injury? Um, I've dropped a few, like, kind of small hard drives and stuff and kind of uh, stubbed my toe quite a few times, yeah. Actually, I think if you look at my fingers, there are scars on there from many years of trying to undo um, metal shielding on Amigas. So I've sliced a few hands of the daughterboard of the Amiga 4000, your knuckles Those can just points. get yeah, ripped oh. off, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're saying here that last year, uh, two women had laptops fall out of the overhead compartments on planes and land on their head. So okay. that's well, an injury. If you get a MacBook Air on your head, it's probably not as painful, though, I guess. So, you know, you said they're getting smaller. Or a Raspberry Pi wouldn't sting as much. Yeah, so uh, last year, a five-year-old kid stuck a USB cord in an electric socket. Oh, ouch. Yeah. So, you know, there was, there's quite a few, but uh, luckily they're getting less. Yeah, so it's gone down from, uh, well, this is America, isn't it? So it was actually 1,019 in 2011, and it was down to um, 631 by 2015. So interestingly, though, the ones that seem to get injured most are kids between the age of 6 and 12. (laughs) Yeah, just do not leave anything that you can plug into plug sockets. (laughs) But were you one of those kids that used to take everything to bits? I had this one point where I had an Amiga 4000, and... uh, I had like a GVP hard drive board in there and I had not used it and I plugged it in. I think it was for a 2000 or something. This was when I was not knowing what the hell I was doing and uh, I plugged it in with a wooden spoon oh, what? to not electrocute myself <laughs> and the whole chip <laughs> went like bright and then suddenly a big spark went from it and I was just like, Jesus, do not play with this anymore. I remember when I was a kid, I took my video recorder a bit in my bedroom, and then I think I touched something inside it, like when it was on, sparked all the electricity in the house. What, tripped yeah. it? Yeah, I got a, got a nasty shock off it as well. <laughs> so I used, to, I used to be a bugger for doing that, though. I'd take everything to bits when I was a kid. Oh, I took my mum's PC uh, and broke it, and yeah. she had a PhD on there. <laughs> yeah, I got absolutely battered for that. Sorry. I remember when I built my first PC, like, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was maybe about what, 14 or something. Yeah. Thought I knew it all. Put the motherboard in the case, didn't put any spaces on the bottom. Oh. Fried all the traces on the bottom of the case, <laughs> oh, didn't no. I? Said my dad, I don't know why it hasn't worked. I think it's faulty. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah what a new. But then I'm looking at some of the stuff they, were, they reported here. Um, a 22-year-old man dropped a computer on, on, <laughs> on, on pubic area and suffered testicle pain, apparently. Now, obviously, they're the saying these are going down, but who is ringing up and reporting these? I don't know. I don't know. I can imagine there's probably a fair amount of people that are trying to sue for them as well. (laughs) 
I've struck my hard disk on my bollocks. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ringing up with those these no. days, come on. So if you want to see some of these, they are quite amusing. I've got to head to our website, theretrohour.com. Right, thank you for checking out episode number 54. We'll be out again next Friday. Of course, you can download the show from all of your favourite podcast clients. And uh, we haven't had any reviews on iTunes for a while, have we? No, no, get some in and uh, hopefully I'll be coming back from Ireland with some good audio clips and nice interviews. Absolutely. So uh, look out for that next week. Of course, we'll have all the links on our website and on YouTube and on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you give us a follow on there if you haven't already. Right then, for the next 40 minutes or so, definitely one for the RTS fans this week. If you love games like XCOM, Laser Squad, Chaos Reborn, Julian Gollop on the Retro Hour. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest. Thank you for coming on the show, Julian Gallup. How are you? I am fine, thank you. And it's great to be on the show. So, um, obviously, we're going to talk about all these amazing games that you've been involved with. I know Ravi's there, very keen, been a, been a big fan. Um, but I, first of all, I thought it might be quite interesting to go all the way back to the beginning and just find out where it all began for you. What was your first ever experience with a computer? Oh, my goodness me. I think this would have to be the Commodore PET, which was at school. Uh, and the first computer game I played on that was a, one, of, one of these versions of Star Trek. I don't know if you remember these sort of ASCII-based Star Trek games. On the green screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the first game I played on it. So that's the first game I played on a home computer, actually, even though it was at school. So when did you get your own machine then? Well, the first machine I got was a ZX81, which I bought secondhand for a, from a friend for a 25 quid, I seem to remember. And I learned to program basic on that. So that must have been 1982 or possibly in early 1983. And I thought this was the most amazing machine ever. I, I very quickly got a 16K RAM pack for it because there wasn't very much I could do in 1K. Although I did learn to program on basic on my 1K ZX81, mostly by plugging into the TV at midnight when everybody had gone to bed and then tapping away on it for an hour or so and then trying to save usually unsuccessfully my programs onto cassette tape before it crashed uh, yeah <laughs> i mean the tape saving was a bit unreliable and then when i got the the, the 16k ram pack i suffered from the dreaded ram pack wobble so i had this basically big wooden board and i had this sort of like blue tack stuff and i just stuck everything down with blue tack and sellotape to make sure it didn't shift well, I hear your um, household was also a very kind of board game-focused house. Uh, it was, yes. We've been playing board games since I was very young. My dad was very keen on them. He would normally buy a new board game every Christmas, and this is what we would do a, a lot during Christmas. He's played board games, card games a lot as well, because both my dad and my mum were keen on those. Chess, of course, we played. Cribbage, all kinds of you know poker, all kinds of card games. Lots of board games, Risk, Monopoly, Totopoly, all kinds of other games that we got then. Um, I actually started making games when I was about 11 or 12. I was making board games. So this was actually obviously long before home computers even existed. It's crazy because we have a lot of people that come on this show and say, you know, they were either making maps or they were making board games and all these ideas kind of existed before computers. Uh, yeah, they did. And... Um, Actually, the first computer game I designed was was originally created as a pencil and paper game, and this was a game called um, Time Lords. It required a sort of like a dungeon master sort of, to sort of generate the universe. There were these little rules for generating an universe. There's like five planets and 15 time zones or something, and then the players were were basically Time Lords that traveled in time and space, and they had to they each had a sort of client race, and they had to influence wars in their favor. And when you um, arrived at a time zone on a certain planet, you could get some information about the history of the different races that are there, find out which ones had fought wars, and then go there and influence them. So I, I never intended it as a computer game originally, but when my, a friend of mine got a BBC B model, uh, yeah, BBC model B computer, he programmed a version of it. Uh, on the computer and uh, that became my first commercial selling computer game 
That's interesting. That was designed originally as a pen and paper game, then, and then. Um, I mean, did you find yeah. it was an easy transition to to a computer then, or did you have to change quite a lot? Uh, well, we added a few things. I seem to remember because um, there were some very interesting logical sort of paradoxes with it that we we added the feature to actually fight other time lords in in a certain time zone. And if you fought a time lord in a time lord in a time zone and killed him before he had influenced some of his wars, then anything that he did subsequent to that would be reversed. And if he'd killed someone else, it would make them come alive and all kinds of weird things happened <laughs> in the computer version, which were really impossible to do in the pen and paper version. Well, you obviously managed to get that game released commercially. I mean, um, it was Redshift. Yeah. How did you find Redshift then back then when you were a kid? So Redshift was... Uh, a friend of mine was involved in Redshift. He, he, him and a group of uh, friends who I didn't know at the time. They're all older than me. But anyway, so this friend of mine was involved in Redshift, and I got involved with them as a publisher of, of Time Wars, my first game. Then I land here, which was my second game. I was still at school at this stage. And when I left school, I was effectively working for Redshift, and I produced some more games with them. These were all board gamers. In fact, this friend of mine, his his dad was um, a colleague of my mum's, a teacher in a school. And they were all board war gamers and miniature war gamers as well. And this was our this was our heritage, basically. It was mainly in, in war gaming, both board war games and miniature war gaming. And this obviously influenced very much the games that we, we did at Redshift. Um, they were all sort of strategy games or war game oriented. Yeah, so you were kind of at computer shows, you know, with Ziploc bags and all the other kind yeah. of Brits off people trying to shift your right, yeah. yeah. The ZX Microfairs, I remember those, yeah. Yeah, we had a, Regis had a stand at most of these and we were selling stuff. Um, yeah, Time Laws was originally just a little cardboard insert, insert in a Ziploc, Ziploc bag with a crappy cassette tape. <laughs> it was very, very primitive. Something very romantic looking back at, on those times, though, isn't there? Oh, well, it is sort of, because it's kind of, um, uh, I'm going to talk about indie gaming today, today, but I mean, those days, you know, you were literally bedroom coders knocking together games in like six months or something, and then just producing them and selling them <laughs> shows, or by mail order, of course. We did a lot of business by mail order. And uh, yeah, it's kind of, despite the primitive technology available, it was much more accessible for people to get into it in a way. Um, all you needed was a ZX Spectrum or a home computer, which, although they were expensive, of course, they weren't you know, enormously expensive. So, yeah, it was, it was cool. You know, people were doing innovative stuff. And uh, talking of innovative stuff, with uh, Nebula, you had really kind of early stuff like AI and resource management you wouldn't usually find yeah. other games. Yeah, so Nebula is like, maybe you can almost describe it as one of the um, first ever 4X games. Well, actually, it's more like a 3X game. I mean, although there was, the exploration element wasn't exactly very strong, you did uh, control an empire and you had to um, conquer planets, exploit them, build your forces and then there was a sort of an ai in there that you had to fight against and there were random events in it and this was the first game that i actually programmed on uh, my spectrum 48k and it was all programmed in basic well um your your games kind of had started to get a theme of squad based games and uh turn based games was this because of your gaming background Tabletop gaming. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And miniature war gaming, board war gaming. A number of games influenced me, like Squad Leader and Sniper. These were all Second World War uh, Hex Encounters board games. Although Squad Leader is actually still going and still available. Rebel Star Raiders was the first tactical squad based game that I did. It was programmed in BASIC on my Spectrum 48K. It was two player only, um, but each each player controlled a set of characters with different weapons and different names, and there were like, three different scenarios included in the game. And that was really quite successful. Well, you mentioned, obviously, before your dad um, had a strong you know, background in, um, in tabletop gaming and board games. Um, what did he think then to you, uh, you doing video games? Did he understand computers, or was he, uh, you know, was he supportive of that? Uh, yeah, he was supportive. When I left school, I was doing this for about a year, but then I went to 
university. So I spent two years there. I didn't finish my degree because I decided to set up um, a computer development company, which my dad was financing because he, he obviously realized that there was some, you know, this was a growing business, a growing industry. Uh, I think this is like 1987. Um, so me and a friend of my dad set up the company. He was a shareholder and the financier. Uh, it was only financed with £16,000, I think, initially. And we produced uh, Laser Squad at that point. Uh, so he was pretty instrumental in getting Laser Squad off the ground, which was then instrumental, of course, in getting XCOM off the ground. Well, uh, just before Laser Squad as well, um, you had some work with Games Workshop. Um, we're from Nottingham, so we absolutely love them. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you made a, a Chaos card game as a child. Right. So Chaos, yeah, the story of Chaos, this was originally a card game, which I made, I think, in 1981. And it was played out on a board, which was just a sort of square grid. And the cards were spells and creatures. And when you summoned them, you placed the card on the on the grid and you moved it around. And you had a wizard which could summon these uh, creatures and cast these spells. Uh, and it was a great little board game. But actually, the first computer version of that was was again done by my friend with the BBC Model B, uh, Andy Green. And he made a version of that, which was, uh, I think, originally two-player only. But I think he was working on AI. It was quite difficult, though, because the, of the limited memory on the BBC Model B. I think he, he actually had to do it in the character mode to give him 32K of... Um, of RAM. So it didn't look very pretty on the BBCB. So I came back to this idea of doing chaos uh, after I left school and I started working on it late 1983. I was working on it 1984 and it was published by Games Workshop because at that time Redshift, we had contacts with Games Workshop because the first game that Redshift made was called Apocalypse, which is a basically a computer game version of one of Games Workshop's very first uh, board games. When Games Workshop was set up, they produced uh, four board games were their first four products. One of them was called Apocalypse. I can't remember entirely what the other ones were. Uh, They're not so memorable these days. Um, but they were a very new young company at the time. When we sort of left, we all left Redshift, actually, because of um, problems with the financing of the company. I mean, none of us getting paid. And we sold some of the stuff that we were working on to to Games Workshop, Chaos being one of them, and we did some other computer game versions of um, Games Workshop games. So I worked on a Spectrum 48K version of Battle Cars, and uh, another friend of mine from Redshift was working on uh, Talisman, although it was not exactly a very faithful rendition of the board game. Oh, that was one of my think, favorites, Talisman was. <laughs> yeah, the board game. Yeah, well, the, the, the computer version we did bore very little resemblance to the actual board game because <laughs> you were sort of running left and right in real time and each screen was like one of the spaces on the board but I couldn't quite remember how you got from the outer ring to the inner ring or anything like that but it's sort of uh, it was done like a real-time arcadey game uh, as was battle cars so I, I did the battle car designer for battle cars but not the main main part of the game but I mean that was it really after I did chaos for games workshop I you know, stopped doing computer games for a while because I was at uh, university and I was obviously trying to study. Well, we do need to mention Laser Squad. I mean, obviously, that was such yeah. a big game for you guys. And I mean, um, was, was that yeah. kind of the first yeah. game you worked on full time then, was it? Not, not, well, yes, you could say. At first, well, I was working pretty much full time on Chaos for a while because mm -hmm. I, I had a, a gap year between leaving school and going to university. And actually, while I was at college, I also made uh, Rebel Star which is another step between Rebel Star Raiders and Laser Squad. And this was published by, was it Firebird? Was it Telecom Soft? I yeah, can't remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it was on the Firebird label. And that was, again, a little bit of an evolution from the earlier Rebel Star Raiders. And it did have a, a an AI for that game. Even though when I took it to them, it was two-player again only. And they said, yeah, it's a great game, but you've got to do an AI. So I, I remember I spent two weeks just holed up in my room in the in the university halls of residence. Everybody wondered where I was and what I was doing. <laughs> I should have been going to lectures and classes, but I spent basically two weeks getting the AI done for this game, which I did. I took it to them and they published it, and that was Rebel Star. 
And I kind of, uh, that was actually relatively successful for me financially. I was able to um, get a bit of dosh and uh, I thought, well, you know, I really need to do this properly. So that's when I left college to set up uh, what was initially Target Games with a friend and my dad to to make Laser Squad. That game had many firsts. I mean, you know, stuff like unit facings, hidden movement based on true yeah. line of sight, destructible terrain. I mean, we must yeah. have been quite a was it quite a big job? I mean, to implement all this stuff over the previous games that you'd worked on. The, uh, was it difficult? Well, it was certainly the most ambitious product I worked on. I didn't. I think it took us around um, took me maybe eight months to make it on the Spectrum. But then, of course, we did versions for the. Commodore 64 and Anstrab CPC machines. Mm-hmm. By that stage, my brother had come, he'd finished university and he'd come to work with me. And he was working on a Commodore 64 version. So it was getting quite a lot of work, for sure. Although we did, uh, at that time, acquire a, a much better development system called PDS, which is an IBM PC development system for the uh, Spectrum and other 8-bit computers. And that was really great because you could type all your code on the PC, you just pressed a button, a few seconds, it was compiled and downloaded to your machine, and you can test and debug it. Um, so that certainly helped our productivity. And uh, yeah, so LaserCord was actually published in 1988, I think. And it got s- such a good reception, that game, though, didn't it? That must have yeah. do, did a lot yeah. for your reputation, I imagine. Uh, yeah, it did. I mean, one of the main things it did, of course, was make um, the first XCOM game possible because um, Stephen Hand, who was a designer at Microprose, at the time, was a big fan of uh, Laser Squad, and um, when we actually went to Microprose, we were, we took to, took to them a uh, demo of what we call Laser Squad Two at the time, which we were programming on the Atari ST. And Stephen Hand was very excited because you know guys had done Laser Squad. They didn't like our demo very much, apparently, but they they thought that it had potential. I mean, it wasn't very finished. You know, we had a, just had a very basic demo, and we were saying to them, well, look, you know, we want to make this, we want to finish this game. Do you want to fund the publishing? They must have been the logical choice to go to as well with games like Civilization. They were, yeah. I mean, absolutely. They were our, our top choice. And we, we decided that we were going to um, build a list of three publishers that we wanted to take the game to. Um, number one, by big margin, was Microprose because of... Um, Games like Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, which I think had either just come out or was about to come out. I, I know that Railroad Tycoon was a big influence on us because that was, um, you know, a really popular simulation style game, and we wanted to make games on the PC as well. Um, so that was, you know, we saw the PC as the future, not the Atari ST. Um, we kind of bypassed the Commodore Amiga a little bit. Because we thought for the games that we wanted to do anyway, you know, that the PC would be the, the main platform. Well, also you'd uh, kind of moved on with graphics here because um, this Laser Squad 2 demo had isometric graphics. It had isometric graphics. It was, uh, I've always wanted to do, you know, proper isometric graphics ever since playing um, a game called Night Law on the uh, Spectrum, which was made by Ultimate Play of the Game, who were later known as Rare. And uh, Night Law was just a fantastic piece of programming, technically, you know, super way out of almost anything else on the Spectrum 48K. And I always thought that would be a fantastic way to represent my Laser Squad games. Of course, it's very difficult to do on the Spectrum 48K, but certainly on a PC, it was uh, much easier. And obviously on an Atari ST and an Amiga also, you know, it's possible to to do this in in a much more uh, impressive way. Um, yeah, so yeah, the demo was on the Atari ST, but we wanted to do it on the PC, and you know we told them that, and uh, they were, I think they said to us, well, you know, can you can you do it on the PC? And I said, yeah, of course, no problem. Cool. Even though we'd never actually written anything for the PC at this, that stage. Was that a bit of a learning curve? So, I mean, were you using like a 68K assembly then on the on the ST? Oh, we were on the ST. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we didn't have any problem with assembly language because we've been using assembly language since you know Spectrum days, you know Commodore 64. So yeah, we we'd done Z80 assembly language, 6502, and 68000 was basically just a much more powerful version of those chips. I remember uh, X86 assembly wasn't wasn't nice, so it was a lot harder. No, we didn't, but when we moved to programming on a PC, we started using C. Of yeah. course, we didn't. We we abandoned assembly language because um, we thought that C would be the lang you know the language that um, 
people would be writing games in. Of course, you know, it was. Um, and although we did have some real initial technical hurdles on the PC because of its memory architecture, which is a pain in the butt because you had to swap in memory and out memory out. And then we, we had a compiler that, that came out called the Whatcom C compiler, which had this flat memory model that had a built-in memory extender. And it just made everything much, much, much easier. Well, um, one thing that absolutely amazed me about XCOM was the amount of stuff that you got in there. So um, we'll start with the music. Um, yeah. John Broomhall, that was just fantastic yes. soundtrack and really nervy. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, John Broomhall and the um, sound designer Andy Parton were both working in-house at Microprose UK. And they were, they were basically the in-house, you know, sound and music team. And they worked on, um, I think, all of the games that were produced in-house at Chipping Sobri anyway. Um, so they got involved in the project relatively late on. I, I don't know how long it actually took John to, to make the music, but I think we were probably spending maybe two or three months on it. And Andy Parton was the also the technical sound guy that made things work on different sound cars, because that was also a problem with the PC in those days. And, um, yeah, the, the music was really, um, you know, atmospheric. I think it's really yeah. important to get good music for a game like that because you're playing the same level or a different setup but with the same kind of situation over and over and over again. So to get the right sound for that is... Yeah, and he, I think he, he managed to do it in such a way that, you know, you, you didn't automatically want to turn the music off after half an hour because it was driving you mad. <laughs> Yeah. So it's very, very impressive the way you managed to do that. But in the in the tactical side of the game, it's much more of a kind of like a background sound effect rather than a music track. Yeah, because um, like, mm. as I said, in the, playing in the game, it's very nervy, and you'd kind of be yeah. going around. People would reveal themselves from the shadows, and even though it was quite a slow game to play, it could kind of be heart stopping <laughs> sometimes. You know. Yeah, the tension could be pretty uh, severe. <laughs> So you don't know what's going to come out of the dark and shoot you. And you think all well, your guys are going to get killed. <laughs> no. Yeah, lose your best guy, permadeath. Well, the, the geoscape was a really exciting feature as well. Obviously, you know, intercepting alien craft and discovering landing sites. Um, how did this idea yeah. come about? Well, it came about um, through our initial discussions in Micro because they wa- they wanted a much bigger game than Laser Squad. They wanted um, something that had, you know, research and this civilopedia style thing. They basically wanted something that would compete with uh, civilization. And um, their thinking was that the UK division of Microprose were treated as like a toy division. They weren't taken very seriously by the um, <clears throat> by their American masters. And they wanted to prove to the US that they could actually produce, you know, uh, expansive strategy games like civilization. <laughs> So that was kind of the ambition. And uh, one of the things, the, the, their requirements were that, that the game had to be set on Earth, that it needs some kind of research mechanism and something similar to the Civilopedia that, that the research filled in. And it should be about UFOs. I think that was it. Those are the requirements that they gave us. And I came up with this idea of the Geoscape that, you know, you're a worldwide organization and you were intercepting UFOs at any part of the world and you had like a real-time view of the world and you can zoom in and rotate it. And you can see the positions of bases and UFOs and interceptors. And um, uh, they thought that was cool. Although, of course, actually programming it was, technically speaking, a much bigger challenge. Yeah. Well, also a very important thing about XCOM with me was the uh, procedural generation in it. And I think that kind of added to the unknown, you know, that you weren't going to get the same gameplay every time. Uh, yeah. I always wanted to do procedurally generated um, environments. I, I wanted to do it for um, uh, Lords of Chaos, which we did after Laser Squad. And the way we did it actually was was very simple in that, that the map was constructed of these smaller map sections, as we call them. So typically a map in XCOM would be somewhere around 50 by 50 spaces, 50 by 50 tiles, and the map sections were 10 by 10. And we designed a bunch of those, and they would be randomly put together inside a, a larger map um, with certain edges of certain of these map sections joining others according to certain rules. And it would um, make a map. So the, the advantage of that is that we didn't have to design a huge number of complete map levels. And um, it basically meant that you got a slightly different 
situation each time you played uh, a game. Yeah, I think that kept it really kind of fresh and it meant that I was playing it a lot longer than <laughs> its usual life. Yeah, and, and it worked really well. I think that other thing about the kind of unknown and the uh, unrevealed was... the It's called Fog of War now, but <laughs> I don't know what it was called back then. But uh, the kind of dark sections on the map that you had to go and reveal, I guess you'd got that off Civilization or other ones as well. Not really. I mean, I was. I had. I tended to think along simulation lines in a way. I, I um, obviously we had our line of sight algorithm, which was relatively realistic, so the intervening terrain would would block line of sight. The darkness, though, was handled a little bit more abstractly. That that each soldier basically sat in a pool of light, and this would fade away to darkness further away from the soldier it was. And if aliens were in the darkness, then they would basically be hidden unless you revealed them with a. Um, uh, one of these light rods that you could throw. Um, what else could you use? Fire, you could set fire to things, of course. <laughs> and he had the motion tracker thing, which, of course, borrowed from the film Aliens. So there were ways to detect them. Um, so it was more realistic than the so-called fog of war, which became common in um, RTS games. What was your favourite alien from XCOM, then? Have you got one? Uh, yeah, the chrysalid, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Because still, still of its <laughs> shock and terror value was quite high. <laughs> because it would um, yeah, obviously attack your guys, infect them. They'd turn into zombies and new chrysalis would burst out. And it could, you could get into a slightly spiraling, uncontrollable situation of alien death, which was quite cool. So they were always terrifying to see those. Well, the, the kind of theme and the art behind it was very kind of manga-based and the box art, you know, was like a, a movie or something. It was amazing. Yeah, so the art was um, the art style was, was very much down to John, John Wrights, who had this really nice pixel art style. I think also the Microprose design team wanted it more manga-ish. Steve Hand and, uh, in particular directed some of the early stuff that um, John was doing. Uh, when it came to actually choosing which aliens went in the game, we we basically just uh, and John uh, Wrights had he just had screenfuls of different alien designs, and we just picked some of them, picked the best of them, and they had to go in the game. I then had to figure out exactly what these aliens were supposed to do and what their relationship to each other was and what their abilities were, um, somewhat after the fact, um, but it worked. And that's obviously quite quite a hard question, you know, twenty odd years down the line. But you know, if you if you could go back in time and do XCOM again, is there anything you'd do differently, or would you leave it as it is? Oh well, yeah, I would actually probably the main thing I would have done differently is to um, hire more programmers to work on it, and and for me to <laughs> not have done any programming whatsoever, <laughs> um, because it really was a uh, a very small scale sort of effort for, for a game which is so ambitious. I mean, there was basically just me and my brother Nick working on it, programming and design. Um, there were two artists for the, for most of the projects. One, uh, Martin Smiley, who worked on the terrain graphics and some of the autopsy stuff. And there's John Wrights, who did all a lot of the, um, all the character stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was too much really for such a small team. Um, we really should have been a bit larger, at least. Well, I mean, you obviously did an amazing job. I mean, even to this day, it's often referred to as, you know, the greatest PC game of all time. I often see it in polls. I mean, uh, that, yeah. that must blow you away yeah. still, does it? Yeah, I, I'm still surprised about that, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's pleasantly surprising. Um, and what's more remarkable is, is is how badly we actually managed to playtest the game. I, I never managed to play through the game from start to, to the end. I was always having to try to guess more or less where players might be at certain points and try and figure out how to manage the difficulty in the game. Uh, it's very difficult because our, you know, our crunch period at the end of the end of the project was pretty severe. And um, a lot of the time we were just trying to finish the game and fix bugs. So there wasn't a lot of time to really balance the game properly. How did you uh, feel about the piracy at the time of XCOM? Well, I wasn't really aware of the extent of the piracy, to be honest. Um, I mean, it was massively pirated because, you know, we, anyway, when I came to Bulgaria here, a lot of my colleagues say, oh, yeah, XCOM, yeah, we played that. I mean, lots of people here played it. <laughs> I hear um, Russia as because, well. And Russia, yeah, hugely popular in Russia. There was even some guy who wrote XCOM novels, I think, which were published in Russia. Um, I was just not aware of the extent of piracy at all. 
Well, um, after this, uh, Micropose wanted to follow up and follow up quickly uh, with XCOM Terror from the Deep. Uh, they decided to assign the code to an internal Micropose team. How did you feel about this? Well, our dispute with Micropose was basically we wanted to do something different. They wanted a quick XCOM follow-up, and they wanted it within six months. And we said, well, uh, we didn't think it was possible. We, didn't, we basically said that we, we couldn't do that. You know, It wasn't possible for us to do it, and that we needed to work on uh, something new and a bit more innovative, and it would obviously take longer. So what they said was, to, uh, you know, why don't we license the code from you and we do X, the follow-up to XCOM, and then you do the third one in the series? So that was the agreement. And so XCOM Terror from the Deep was entirely done in-house at Microprose Chipping Sobri. They used all of our code base. Um, I don't think they actually changed very much, to be honest. Um, but there was obviously a lot more content in um, Terror from the Deep. And they had a much larger team, I think around 12, 16 people. Meanwhile, we continued to work on uh, XCOM Apocalypse, which took us, um, yeah, it took us over two, two and a half years maybe to, to finish that game. Um, and that was much more ambitious. I read apparently that you, you had ideas to do like a fantasy um, kind of spin-off of XCOM that was set in the 1930s. Yeah, so what I wanted to do was a sort of Lovecraftian version of XCOM, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> um, the idea being that you were a secret organisation trying to infiltrate cults and find out what these cults were doing, and you were... These cults were summoning monsters from wherever, and you had to find ways to fight them and control them, which would have been very interesting, probably quite popular. But they they didn't. Microprose said that's you know that won't work because horror games don't sell. And we said to them, "Well, how do you know that?" I said, "Well, we made one and it didn't sell." They were referring to some rather obscure sort of adventure style game that microprocessor sold which wasn't very good and they come to the conclusion that horror games do not sell um which is uh well obviously completely incorrect i mean um i mean interestingly you know lovecraftian stuff cthulhu mythos is still actually quite popular there's even a computer game coming out this year i think called call of cthulhu so yeah, it's just, that was a shame because that was a that would have been an interesting an interesting take on the XCOM sort of mechanics well, um, you came up with XCOM Apocalypse next, and that had a, a kind of change in the features. You could either go turn-based or real-time. Um, why was this done? It was done because there was a huge amount of uh, sort of development done on RTS games at the time. We're talking around 95, 96. Um, everybody's saying, well, the turn-based games are so passe, so dead, so old-fashioned, you know, real-time strategy games were the big thing, which, of course, they were. So we felt that we needed to do something which had a real-time element. Um, and uh, I was quite interested in doing something like that anyway. Um, what we actually came up with was something a bit different to, to a normal RTS anyway, which is basically a pausable um, real-time system, which allow players to actually pause and give orders by hitting the space bar. We did also have a, a turn-based option as well with XCOM Apocalypse. So it was it was a bit of a stretch technically. And I, I can't say honestly that it worked very well uh, looking back on it. Well, uh, another thing you did was also replace the planet Earth with a city. And uh, this would require yeah. lots yeah. of micromanagement. So if you didn't keep them happy, they'd start attacking you. Yeah, so there was a lot of different organizations which in the city... Um, some of which were um, corporations, some of them were government organizations, some of them were various religious organizations. And it was kind of a bit, um, yeah, it was kind of weird because they had all this diplomacy between these factions and you could upset them and they could upset each other and you could have like three or four way fights over the city, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I find that really interesting because I think lots of games, they'll deal with aliens, but they won't deal with the politics behind meeting aliens. And No. You know. Well, our, our new game, Phoenix Point, will actually feature quite a lot of this, actually. Um, there will be different human factions with um, different agendas as set in an XCOM-style game. So, that, you know, that will something is something that we're revisiting, actually, which will be interesting. Ah, nice. And uh, talking of revisited games as well, XCOM 2 has come out and uh, been rather successful. Um, what do you think of the game? 
Uh, I think it's fantastic. I've certainly played quite a lot of it, um, <laughs> at least 200 hours, I think, so far. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's probably not something that I would have done in exactly the same way as they did it. Um, but they have done some things which I think are very cool. They've got a procedurally generated um, environment system, which is really good. And they've got some very interesting sort of character classes and abilities. And, you know, the tactical tactical combat side is really good. Um, and it was a very challenging game, for sure. Um, but, yeah, I really enjoyed it. What do you think of the AI in it, though? I mean, obviously, you know, so long after the original game, did you think it had come on quite as far as it should have? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> it didn't seem to matter very much because when you're playing x 2 at a sort of high level it's it becomes a bit more like a puzzle game really because you basically have to figure out what you need to do to wipe out the enemies as soon as you see them otherwise you risk losing uh losing guys so the ai had certain behaviors you know uh, you know the sec toys for example they 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 use their abilities in a certain order in a certain pattern which you could make use of um, in fact, some of the predictability of the AI you really depended on to actually win the game. Although it's a shame it wasn't more dynamic because, in a way, it, the the enemies do tend to get a little bit, um, you know, too predictable after a while. Are you, are you surprised at how well that new title's done then? I'm not surprised, no, because I, I know there's a big audience for such games. Um, and if they're you know, produced for a very high quality like the, you know, the modern XCOM games are, then no, I don't think it's surprising that they've done well. Well, um, yourself, you've returned to a turn-based format and this is uh, Chaos Reborn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Chaos Reborn is an update of um, Chaos from 1985. And it really started as a fairly faithful update, but has since expanded a bit into a much bigger game. And... Um, and yeah, it's absolutely awesome. It's great. It worked out very well. Um, I think a lot of players were, uh, or at least some players, not a lot, um, were found the you know the RNG aspect very difficult to manage because, like the original Chaos, there was basically a chance of casting a spell and there was a chance of killing an enemy monster, and you either killed it or nothing happened. Um, so it was very brutal in that sense. Um, but a lot of our players really like this very fast flowing and um you know the the fortunes changing from one turn to the next it's it worked very well and of course we had a multiplayer version of this game so it allows people to compete online um up to four up to actually up to six wizards now uh six players um and it's it's done pretty well what was it like for you revisiting chaos the battle of the wizards again then after all that time, well, it was it was cool, you know, because I really liked the original Chaos, and you know, so I'm I have very fond memories of working on that. And you know, people always a lot of people say that it's a game that stands out for them because it's kind of so unique and so different. Uh, even in those days when you didn't have networks play on a spectrum, people were playing Chaos multiplayer with up to eight wizards, <laughs> eight people, which you could just about do. Uh, on just one 48k spectrum, and um, yeah, revisiting that was 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 really cool. Oh, and you've got a new project coming up. Yeah, so we're working on uh, Phoenix Point, which is an XCOM style game in the sense that it has turn-based tactical battles, and it's set on uh, on the Earth in the near future. And there's a strategic level to the game which borrows some things from XCOM Apocalypse, as I said, in the sense that there are a number of different factions that control various resources and locations on the Earth, and you have to negotiate with them, fight them, uh, assist them in order to pro progress your uh, particular objectives in the game. And, um, yeah, it's going to be really cool. And actually also revisiting some of the Lovecraftian elements as well. In fact, the story behind it, does owe a lot of influence to Lovecraft's work, and uh, I think people will be quite excited about the aliens that we're going to, or creatures, whatever you want to call them, that you're going to be dealing with in this um, in this game. And uh, this time, it's not a Kickstarter, is it? 
No, it's not. Um, we are still contemplating whether to do a Kickstarter or um, go through the traditional publishing route, but we haven't uh, made a firm decision on that as yet. When can we expect the game out then? Is there any kind of ETA for it at the moment? Oh, it's a long way away. Okay. Yeah, so we're at very early stages. I, I think it would be at least two years away. But looking forward to it still. <laughs> Absolutely. It's phoenixpoint.info if you want to, uh, people want to keep up to date with uh, where you want. You can sign up for updates on your website as well, can't you? Yeah, yeah. I thought we'd uh, one final question, Julian. I thought this might be quite interesting. Just, you know, a complete fantasy world here. If you had unlimited budget, the technology was as powerful as you want, what game would you make? (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. Yeah, that's a rather big question. What game would I make? I've often uh, fancied doing something a bit like um, Warhammer Fantasy Battle on the grand scale in computer terms. It's set in a whole fantasy environment but of course that's kind of already been done so I, I don't know because um, <laughs> Warhammer Fantasy has just come out Warhammer Total War Warhammer has just been released that would have appealed to me I think quite a lot um, so I, I I just don't know well we look forward to seeing what you do anyway <laughs> yeah, thanks <laughs> hey, well Julian, thank you so much for coming on this week it's been really interesting well thank you